From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Thursday, September 6th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Pakistan tells Save the Children's foreign staff to leave the country. We'll hear why. Also ahead, a new report alleges the CIA abused Libyan fighters who later helped overthrow Gaddafi. And a Russian journalist in trouble over President Putin's latest stunt. I couldn't have scripted this, but I knew that there was trouble in there. You know, I was actually trying to avoid getting fired. And... Namaskar. Bishe Shantihok. Re-listening to some of the greetings and sounds that went into space 35 years ago. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. And by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece Mystery, Kenneth Branagh stars as brooding Swedish cop Inspector Kurt Wallander. He has a new relationship, a new sense of possibility, and three chilling new cases with devastating effects. Don't miss a new season of Wallander, Sunday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. One of the largest aid groups working in Pakistan got some bad news today. Pakistani authorities ordered the foreign staff that saved the children to leave the country. No official reason was given. But it's widely believed that the expulsion order is related to the case of a Pakistani doctor who helped the CIA track down Osama bin Laden last year. That doctor reportedly told Pakistani intelligence agents that he was introduced to the CIA by an official with Save the Children. Declan Walsh is the New York Times Pakistan Bureau Chief in Islamabad. Save the Children, Declan, has a major presence in Pakistan. 2,000 workers, only six foreign workers. So what is the significance of these six foreign workers being told to leave the country? Well, Save the Children is actually the largest international aid organization working in Pakistan. It says that it helps up to 7 million Pakistanis every year. And it played a very big role in the relief efforts during the floods that devastated Pakistan back in 2000. 2010. So the significance is both in terms of Save the Children's operations in country to help Pakistanis who are in difficulty, but it's also about the wider signal it sends to the international humanitarian community, which has been under intense scrutiny over the last 15 months since the bin Laden raid from the Pakistani authorities who fear that international or Western relief agencies are being used as cover by intelligence agencies, in this case particularly the CIA, in order to carry out their activities in Pakistan. So they've really been feeling the strain and the expulsion of these people from Pakistan will be another worrying sign for humanitarians trying to do their work here. It's a charge that's often made against aid agencies that they're working on behalf of intelligence services here or that the uh, aid workers themselves might even be spies. Remind us of the backdrop in this particular case. 
It all stems back really to Dr. Shaquille Afridi. As you say, he is the doctor who helped the CIA to track down Osama bin Laden to Abbottabad, that's the town where he was discovered and killed in May 2011. A couple of weeks after bin Laden was killed, Dr. Afridi was picked up by Pakistani intelligence. He was interrogated extensively. And Dr. Afridi, as we understand it, and of course we're very much relying on second-hand reports here and on, on police reports, he told the Pakistani authorities that his introduction to the CIA came through a senior official at Save the Children. In fact, he said that it came through the country director of Save the Children back in 2009. Now, of course, Save the Children deny this vehemently. They say that they have absolutely no link to intelligence activities. And some senior Western officials I've spoken to here are also skeptical about this claim. Some of them believe that Dr. Afridi may have been tortured under interrogation and that may have influenced what he was prepared to say to the Pakistani authorities. And Dr. Afridi is serving now with 33-year jail sentence in Pakistan. That's right. Last May, there was a very hasty and opaque legal process. He went under trial in the tribal areas, which has an entirely different legal system from the rest of the country. Uh, There's very little transparency. In very short order, he was sentenced to 33 years. Interestingly enough, not for spying for the CIA, but from some entirely unrelated charges. In any event, he's now in jail in Peshawar, and his family want the conviction to be overturned. And then the other form of Court he has comes from the United States, where there are a large number of congressmen who feel that Dr. Afridi was someone who helped the United States to catch someone who was also an enemy of Pakistan, and that therefore he should not be punished in this manner. There's a local effect here and an international consequence too. The local effect of a group like Save the Children having its foreign staff having to leave the country, and also other organizations, aid organizations that you say have been restricted in their movements in some way recently. What is the consequence on the ground of that? For Save the Children, it's really not clear at the moment. Save the Children has reduced its foreign presence over the last year or so. They now just have six international staff members here. These are the people who've been given a deadline to leave, as I understand it, by next Wednesday. But the organization also employs 2,000 Pakistanis across the country. And it says that its operations will not be severely impacted. The wider problem really is the signal that this sends to the broader humanitarian community already over the last 15 months since the bin Laden raid. Aid agencies have been saying that they have great difficulty getting visas for their staff. Their movements are restricted across the country. Uh, Some are complaining of harassment from intelligence people who turn up at their offices asking questions. And coupled with the declining security situation for aid agencies, it's a very difficult atmosphere for the international aid community here. Yeah, and there's also a larger picture here of the the lingering tension between Pakistan and the United States, between the governments in the aftermath of the apprehension and death of Osama bin Laden. Absolutely. It's very hard to avoid that impression when you're looking at these stories, particularly about this affair of Dr. Afridi, which in a sense has become sort of symbolic of the tensions between the two countries. Here we have this man who helped out the CIA, and the Pakistani argument is that this is treason under Pakistani law and deserves to be punished. On the other hand, you have the United States saying that Dr. Afridi was helping to track down a common enemy of both Pakistan and the United States. And despite much talk about his case over the last number of months, both sides still seem to be very far apart. Thank you. Speaking to us from Islamabad, the Pakistan Bureau Chief for the New York Times, Declan Walsh. Thanks again. Thank you very much.
A new report by the group Human Rights Watch seems to lift the lid on another piece of recent U.S. intelligence history. It contradicts a CIA claim that the spy agency subjected just three terrorism suspects to waterboarding during the Bush administration. The report alleges the technique was used more than the CIA has acknowledged. Specifically, it says the CIA subjected several Libyan detainees to abuse, including waterboarding, and that the CIA then handed them over to the Gaddafi regime for more abuse. Omar Gaddafi was still in power then. Human Rights Watch bases its findings on interviews with former detainees and documents that came to light after Muammar Gaddafi was toppled last year. Some of the individuals who claim to have been abused are now in key leadership positions in the new Libyan government. That's a government the U.S. helped bring to power and is now funding. If you're having trouble understanding why the CIA might abuse men who they then would later help to overthrow Gaddafi, think back to 2004. The Bush administration's war on terror was in full swing, and the relationship between the U.S. and Gaddafi's Libya was positively cozy. Colonel Gaddafi had agreed to give up his weapons of mass destruction, and Washington was happy to have a friend in the region after the Iraq invasion. When Libyan fighters were captured in Afghanistan, cooperation between intelligence services followed. Laura Pitter wrote the Human Rights Watch report, and she says that Libyan fighters may have been in the wrong place at the wrong time, but their reasons for being in Afghanistan had nothing to do with the jihad against the West. They'd been working to overthrow Gaddafi from various bases around the world for the last 20 years. One of them was Afghanistan. There were also bases in Sudan. They tell us that they basically, it was the only place that they could exist without proper documentation from their own governments and, and, and train and work to overthrow their government. But they, they do say that they had you know absolutely no animosity towards the U.S. and were completely opposed to the views of Osama bin Laden and actually confronted him with their opposition to those views personally. Could you tell us about some of the the uh, uh, Libyans who you talked to, you interviewed, uh, who say they had been targeted by the U.S. and tortured by the U.S.? So of the number of Libyans that we spoke to, um, there were five who had been taken to a, a black site in Afghanistan that we believe was run by the CIA. And they were held there for between eight months and two years. And they were subject to very serious abuses where they had been chained naked to their in their cells in pitch darkness for months, um, beaten, slammed against walls. One, uh, he appears to have been waterboarded. He didn't say he was waterboarded, but what he described is waterboarding. He was put on a wooden plank, strapped down, a hood over his, his face, and uh, while guards who were masked stood over him and a doctor was present, he was, um, water was poured over his face and mouth to the point where he felt as though he felt as though he was going to suffocate. And he said this happened numerous times, um, more times than he can count, in fact. And then another deep detainee that we spoke to who was, who was held for two years was subject to a similar type of water torture, essentially, that it, it was the same thing, but it didn't happen on a board. The U.S. government has admitted to waterboarding three individuals. Um, and they've named the individuals, and they've said the number of times that they've been interviewed. But they've said that it only happened to three people. And none of them were among the people that you talked to, these that's, Libyans? That, that's correct. So that's a pretty incendiary um, charge then against the government. Do you feel comfortable with the testimony that you got from these men, that what they're saying about waterboarding and, and other forms of abuse at the hands of uh, the U.S. Uh, are valid? I mean, we have... 
uh, I have sources who've confirmed that they were in CIA custody. They, their testimony was very credible. We talked to them all independently. They all confirmed uh, various details about the sites independently of each other. Um, also, we spoke to a number of them in Libyan prison in 2009. And in fact, the gentleman who was who says he was waterboarded had actually told our researcher at the time it was one of a litany of abuses who that he that he said went on at this place. He really had no idea of the significance of it. So after these men were sent back to Libya by the United States, what happened to them then? Well, they they were subject to abuses in Libyan custody. Most of them were held um, up until this, the civil unrest let them out of jail last year. Um, they just received summary trials. Um, you know, that some of them said it lasted about an hour um, and long prison sentences. Some of them were sentenced to death. Um, they there was there were abuses, physical abuses, but they were more isolated than the U.S. abuses. They weren't pervasive and going on all the time. Um, some were beaten. Some were subject to electric shocks. Um, most all of them were put in solitary confinement for a substantial period of time. That's Laura Pitter, who's the counterterrorism advisor at Human Rights Watch and the author of the report, Delivered into Enemy Hands, U.S.-led abuse and rendition of opponents to Gaddafi's Libya. We asked the CIA for a response to the report's allegations, which contradict the official agency line that only three detainees were waterboarded. The CIA sent us an email statement that says the agency stands by its official account. You can read the full statement. It's at theworld.org. Now for today's GeoQuiz, we're looking out well beyond the reaches of the Earth's gravity. Instead of the usual search for the name of a city or an ocean, today we're looking for a bubble of charged particles. That's how scientists describe an area of space we'd like you to name today. It surrounds our solar system, although scientists haven't yet mapped out its precise boundaries. Question for you is this. What's the name of the space bubble that extends out beyond Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, and that reaches out to the interstellar medium? And if you're wondering why all this space talk, well, this place is where the Voyager spacecraft is now. For 35 years, the NASA space probe has been speeding out toward the outer bounds of our solar system. It's the farthest man-made object from Earth, and we're going to mark its 35th anniversary in a few minutes. This is PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Russian President Vladimir Putin has done it again. He's pulled off another made-for-video stunt that's got Russians talking. This week, he flew in a motorized hang glider to try to teach young Siberian cranes how to migrate. He was also wearing a suit designed to look like a crane. 
Video of Putin's flight has been all over Russian TV. Now, Putin's got a thing for helping endangered animals. He once fit a radio collar around a polar bear's neck. He also helped to track down a Siberian tiger. Journalist Masha Gessen is based in Moscow. Until earlier this week, she was the chief editor of Russia's oldest magazine. It's a travel and science magazine called Vakruk Sveta. Now, Putin's flight and your job were on a collision course this week, Masha. What happened? Actually, I was asked to send a correspondent to write about his feat of uh, leading the Siberian cranes. I didn't want to send a correspondent, and I lost my job. Okay. How come you didn't want to send a correspondent? Who asked you to? You're the editor-in-chief, right? Yes, but the magazine has an owner. The owner called me and asked me to send somebody. He had been called by the presidential administration, which is pretty standard practice. I didn't want to send a correspondent because I actually had somebody assigned to do a story on the whole Cranes project. I wanted to do the story without focusing it on Putin. I also knew that if a journalist went along, he or she would probably see something that we would then feel obligated to report and that the publisher would forbid us to report. Wait a minute, see something, and I would lose my job. see something such as what? Such as exactly what happened. Apparently several birds were injured and two died because uh, the whole resettlement project had to be reconfigured to originate where Putin wanted it to originate. So the cranes had to be shipped in crates and it caused several accidents. Uh, that's the sort of thing that has happened with pretty much every one of his nature preservation interventions. That polar bear you mentioned had to be sedated for two days before Putin arrived to put a collar on it. That's really dangerous for a wild animal. I just want to clarify this. You said that in order for the cranes, the Siberian cranes, which are an endangered species, to get to the place where Putin wanted to show them the migratory route from this kind of ultralight plane that he would be on, they had to be shipped there, the cranes did, and two of them died on the way? Right. This is uh, according to a blog report written by an intern on the project. I have no reason to doubt the report. I haven't been able to check it because I'm no longer employed in that capacity. So you said it's standard operating procedure for the Putin government to call someone like the owner of a magazine and then for the owner of the magazine to call someone like you, editor-in-chief, asking that that a certain story be covered. So that's not unusual. Do you think that they were testing you on this? You are outspoken uh, in many ways, in, including in the political realm, about Putin. You wrote a book about Putin, in fact, a critical biography of him. Was this a setup? I don't think it was a setup. Weirdly, uh, the magazine I was running has recently become affiliated with the Russian Geographic Society. The Russian Geographic Society is a nonprofit, a non-governmental organization, but its board of directors is chaired by Putin. Its board of directors is chaired by Putin. So you're presumably under close watch as editor-in-chief anyway. I came under close watch recently, but also, you know, that's uh, the sort of part of Putin's personality. He feels like he owns this country and he feels like he owns anything that he touches. So I think that for his administration to feel that they can order an editor or a journalist to do something is perfectly natural. The reason that my resistance was met with such an extreme response is that it's, um, it's so surprising to resist it. You know, I couldn't have scripted this ever but I knew that there was trouble in there. The advantage of being a popular science magazine is you actually don't have to touch this stuff, or so I thought. Journalist Masha Gessen, based in Moscow. She's the author of a biography of Vladimir Putin called Man Without a Face. Good luck, Masha Gessen. Thank you very much. The spacecraft Voyager 1 left Earth 35 years ago. Its destination, 
300,000 years away, give or take a few, somewhere near Sirius, the brightest star in the sky. There is a Voyager 2, by the way. Both Voyagers are, in the words of NASA, dancing on the edge of the solar system. They're going about 10 miles per second, headed into the outer reaches of the heliosphere, and that is the answer to our geo-quiz. On board, both spacecrafts are time capsules, Just in case anybody comes into contact with the Voyagers, it's hoped that they would like to learn of life elsewhere in the universe. The world's Marco Werman has been reflecting on the contents. Louis Armstrong. Extraterrestrials will definitely want to know about Satchmo. And the ETs will be able to play Satchmo because there's a record player on board Voyagers 1 and 2 and a cartridge with a needle and illustrated instructions on how to drop the needle. The Armstrong track, along with 26 other songs from around the globe, were selected by the late Carl Sagan, his wife Andrian, and their team in 1977. The songs were reproduced in analog form, pressed into a gold-plated record. There are also photographs of scenes on Earth embedded in the record. Who knew that was possible in 1977? As well as greetings in 59 different languages. NASA didn't give Sagan a lot of time to pull the greetings together, so many of them were provided by his international students at Cornell and in the community surrounding Ithaca, New York. Namaskar. Bishe shanti hok. Здравствуйте. Приветствую вас. Selamat malam hadirin sekalian. Selamat berpisah dan sampai bertemu lagi di lain waktu. Those were the basic We Are Earthlings, We Come in Peace greetings in Bengali, Russian, and Indonesian. Though the Indonesian greeting ended with goodbye, see you next time. Pretty optimistic considering the round trip is half a million years. When you read the specs on the Voyagers, they really remind you that they are products of the 1970s. It's not just the messages from President Jimmy Carter and U.N. Secretary General Kurt Waldheim. The computer aboard has one one hundred thousandth of the memory of an 8-gig iPod Nano. And, of course, there's that record player. But it's the curation of the music that's really impressive. Here's a quick sample. On the surface, the golden records make perfect sense. In the eons the voyagers spend in space, they should encounter some life form that can spin the disks. On the other hand, suppose that life form is several million years behind us on the evolutionary scale, and then there's a strong chance that whatever finds the golden record may try to eat it. For the world, I'm Marco Werman.
Okay, your turn now. What song should have been included on the Voyager playlist when it first left Earth 35 years ago? And what tune should be added now? Tell us at facebook.com slash PRI the world. This is PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, the Paralympics come of age and the fans are not disappointed. What they're watching is hard-nosed competitors. Yes, they may be in wheelchairs, they may have no legs, they may have no arms, whatever it is. But really, ultimately, the goal is to wipe their opponent's nose in the dust. That and more coming up on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. President Barack Obama is getting prepped. Tonight, he accepts his party's nomination at the Democratic National Convention. His speech is going to be listened to and dissected around the globe, just as Republican Mitt Romney's was last week. U.S. presidential politics inevitably attracts international attention take this week's shift in the Democratic Party platform, going back to saying that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel that had been omitted. It's on the front pages of news sites all over the world now, the story is. Natan Gutman is Washington correspondent for the Israeli Broadcasting Authority. He also writes for the newspaper Forward. Natan, what did you make of the, the chaos over the mention or lack thereof as Jerusalem as the capital of Israel? Well, definitely for the Israeli public, uh, and I'm sure for many um, Jewish Americans, this was the main um, uh, item of interest in this uh, democratic convention so far. And um, I think there are a few takeaways from this uh, Jerusalem flap. Uh, I think definitely we saw here a very insecure party, a party that's uh, concerned that uh, President Obama's policy or perceived policy, which would be more accurate, towards Israel could cost votes in, in critical Jewish populations in the United States. Uh, Natan, hold on the line there. I want to bring in now Laura Mandeville. She is Washington correspondent for the French newspaper Le Figaro. Uh, Laura, maybe you can tell us how you reported this issue about the, the flip-flop on Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Yeah, actually, uh, when I saw this story, uh, you know, sort of rising during the day uh, yesterday, I filed a story after trying to talk to some Democrats, you know, sort of elected officials and governors and different people on the floor. And I, I was struck by their reluctance, actually, to talk about it very uh, frankly, they seem not at ease with the question. I talked to a um, senator from uh, Michigan who was telling us that he was not happy at all with what he had seen in the platform, but he didn't know who had pushed for this first formulation of uh, not having Jerusalem at the capital and no mentioning of God as well, which was a worry you know, among some people on the floor. Well, I wonder then about the issue, as you said, of the mention of God. Uh, this is uh, something that was not in the platform. It was language, something to the effect of people should be helped to reach their God-given potential. That was omitted, again, from the written platform and then reintroduced. Can you imagine, Lord, this being an issue in a place like France? Would it be? Not at all. I mean, you must remember that there was some kind of... Uh, a debate actually when the uh, Europeans were discussing the European Constitution 
should they mention the Christian roots of uh, of Europe? I mean, there was some kind of debate there, but of course in France, which is a very secular country, it would be inimaginable that a scandal would uh, would uh, pop up, you know, on this question of the mentioning of God. Of course, we're dealing with with a separation of church and state as an issue here. Now, Natan, Israel is built on the basis of religious identity. Does the name God get tossed about in the political arena there as it does here? No, not at all. It's interesting. As you mentioned, there is no formal separation between church and state in Israel. Israel does have Judaism as the state religion, although, of course, all other religions are free to practice. But since there is no separation, there isn't much of a debate about the mention of God in politics. Of course, there is a constant tug of war going on between more religious elements of the Israeli political system and more secular elements over just how much control will state religion have. But in discussions like this over the, the mentioning of the name of God or, or, or saying the word God in the platform would really be seen as, as unusual and strange in Israel. Uh, one question for both of you, one more question, because I know you're busy covering what's happening there in Charlotte, but uh, you also covered Tampa, the Republican convention there. What are the most striking differences for both of you? Oh, uh, for me... Uh I was very struck by the diversity of the faces that we see at the convention. I mean, the very, very strong presence of uh, minorities, especially the black community, extremely present among the delegates. And the atmosphere is actually also very different, sort of maybe freer, less, you know, uh, constrained than it was maybe in Tampa, you know, where where the the people were more traditional in the way they were uh, dressed or they behaved. I mean, it seemed like a big fair here in uh, in Charlotte and was struck also by the amount of people in the street, you know, sort of having fun around the convention, a lot, a lot of people in the street very late at night after the speech of Bill Clinton, you know, people going for drinks and parties pretty much in the open air. I suppose the weather in, in Tampa might have uh, dissuaded some people from staying out late at night. But, uh, but Natan, what's your reaction? I must agree. It does seem to be that the the, the the main difference between the two conventions, at least in the, in the eyes of a foreigner looking at these uh, um, delegates, is a very strong visual difference uh, in terms of diversity. In Tampa, although, of course, there was a certain extent of diversity, it, it did seem to be a very white, middle-aged crowd. And that is something that I'm sure just in looking at it, again, through the eyes of a foreigner, would make the difference even clearer than, than, than for others. Okay, we're going to leave it at that. Natan Goodman of the Israeli Broadcasting Authority and the newspaper Forward, Laura Mandeville of Francis Le Figaro newspaper, both in Charlotte, North Carolina, covering the Democratic National Convention. Nice to talk to you both. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, when it comes to actually choosing candidates for president and vice president, there is no drama in today's tightly scripted political conventions. So if it's drama you crave, check out another big event that's going on this week, the Paralympics. The games for elite disabled athletes are being held in London in many of the same venues as last month's Olympic Games. And much of the competition is just as fierce and emotional. Reporter Fred Dove is covering the Paralympics for the BBC. He says the assignment was a natural for him. 
I am myself physically disabled, I'm a survivor of the drug thalidomide. So they thought, you know, this would be a good opportunity for me to kind of roam amongst the crowds, talk to some of the athletes and have some kind of sense of, of, of common experience. And we should say you're also an athlete. I was once, yes. I've, uh, I've retired from playing cricket, which I did for many years. I was captain of the uh, unofficial England disabled cricket team for a while. But in the course of my life, yes, I've played an awful lot of football, squash, cricket. Fred, we're curious about the status of the Paralympics. The Olympic Games themselves, the Paralympics, have a long history, starting all the way back in 1948, right there in London. Have you seen the kind of range of events and the number of athletes involved grow? And have you seen the profile of the Paralympics grow? If you consider that when uh, Dr. Ludwig Goodman at the Spinal Injuries Unit at Stoke Mandeville Hospital back in 1948 organized a competition in which 16 people in wheelchairs took part. And if you look at it now, there are over 4,000 athletes involved now. So they've grown enormously. Until about you know, the 70s, the competitions were for people in wheelchairs. But since then, they've expanded. And now you have people of almost all disabilities taking part. Uh, you've got uh, people with cerebral palsy. You've got amputees. You've got people with learning disabilities. So the range is enormous. The number of countries taking part has grown enormously too. There are now over 160 countries represented. Um, and you can talk about a global village. Uh, an event like this, the size of it just means that it gains the headlines and therefore the news filters out. As someone who is a close observer for the BBC, I wonder if you see any difference in the way the media covers some of these Paralympic sports versus others. And and what I'm thinking of here is not just the profile of the athletes themselves, but also what kind of disabilities they might have. This is an interesting area because what makes the Paralympics special, let's face it, is that these are elite disabled athletes. Now, the performances they deliver are phenomenal in some cases, uh, in most cases, in fact. But their stories are interesting. So the media finds itself in a little bit of a dilemma. Do we just focus on the performance and, and ignore what is a very good human interest story? Or do we try and tie them together without you know, ending up patronizing? You're having to deal with that yourself as you cover the games. Yes. And, and having taken part in disability sports myself, I know or disabled sportsmen can be like, the kind of really rough kind of humour that you can get, say, in the athlete's village here. But the media, I think, generally has twigged that actually what they're watching is hard-nosed competitors. Yes, they may have no legs, they may have no arms, whatever it is. But really, ultimately, for many of them, that the goal is to wipe their opponent's nose in the dust. They're here to win. They're as self-obsessed in many cases as able-bodied athletes were at the Olympics, what they have in addition to the Olympians is, in many cases, a difficult story to tell, but in many cases also a difficulty that they have overcome. What we don't want, and I go it slip into the we, you notice is there, what we don't want is stories of triumph over adversity. We don't want the pat on the head and go, ooh, aren't you brave? Yesterday I was watching a game of football between players with cerebral palsy and similar conditions affecting the coordination. It was between Argentina and Holland. Now, these are two good footballing nations. And... What really sort of pleased me and surprised me, at one point an Argentinian player laid into one of the Dutch players, laid him out flat, tackled him. It was a dirty tackle, put it that way, and the crowd booed the Argentinian player. Now, I thought that was fascinating because what you had there was a crowd of mainly able-bodied people booing a disabled man. But they were booing him 
because it was a dirty tackle, pure and simple. They no longer saw the disability. They saw the player. They saw the football. And I think that's what you're getting at these Paralympics, that actually the amount of coverage we're now getting means that actually the focus of that is sport, not disability. Is there anything, though, that makes even you uncomfortable where you can't really ignore the disability? No, it doesn't make me uncomfortable, Lisa. You've just reminded me of when I, I think it was either the Paralympics in Sydney in 2000 or in Athens in 2004. And for the first time, I saw a swimmer with no arms. I was glued to the TV screen. I saw how this swimmer went up and down at ridiculous speeds. And instead of touching with his hands at the end, he just smacked into the wall with his head. At these Paralympics, I've seen things which, again, have made me just go, I don't know, speechless. I, a one-legged high jump competition where the winner jumped one meter 74. Now, that's the height of an average man on one leg. Or you watch the dressage, the equestrian competition, where you've got, say, a rider with cerebral palsy. So not able to control some of their own movement, but they can control these big horses, you know, with almost perfection. And yes, I may be disabled, but I too go, oh my, that is, well, I won't use the word brave and courageous. That's not. It's just jolly impressive. Um, just it's an understatement, I'm afraid. It, it's, I want to say something perhaps a little stronger, but I mean, even, you know, we all react as human beings and, and we are fascinated by how other people cope. Whether you're disabled or not, you are curious. But then you see a man with one leg jumping 174. That's just, you know, that's just incredible. Fred Dove, thank you very much. Thank you. Fred Dove is covering the Paralympics in London for the BBC. One of the biggest challenges for those of us who have the job of talking about the Paralympic athletes is how to describe them. The BBC has issued linguistic guidelines for journalists who are covering the Games, but the guidelines only deal with English words, and that can be a problem for many BBC programs in other languages. Here's the world's Patrick Cox. Shodior Saif is a BBC reporter who works in Uzbekistan. He's also disabled. He had polio as a child. But even he and his translator have trouble coming up with the appropriate words to describe how his disability affects the way he walks. Not as a as an able-bodied person. Is that the right word I'm using now? <laughs> able-bodied non-disabled person. Non-disabled. Non-disabled. non-disabled person, I'm really sorry. Saif says until recently he simply hadn't thought about the language of disability. Before, I didn't even pay attention to this uh, that much, before I started uh, thinking about covering Paralympics and coming to London. But now I've arrived here, and there are such words that I have never actually uh, translated into Uzbek before. And now uh, I know that those are the words that I need to be using. Words like non-disabled, that's in the BBC guidelines, which Saif has translated into Uzbek as literally a person without limited abilities. Words that the guidelines say you shouldn't use include handicapped and invalid. Here's the problem. Some languages still use those or similar words, and most people in those places consider them benign. In our language, it's still correct version to use when we describe disabled people. Invalid is the word. This is Andrei Kravitz, a Ukrainian journalist with the BBC. He does say, though, that the lexicon in Ukraine is evolving. There is also now, they've changed it, and now there is a saying, if I translate it into English, it's people with limited abilities. But what of places with disproportionately large numbers of disabled people? Afghanistan is one. An estimated 2 million Afghans are disabled, most because of the decades of conflict. 
Tahir Qadri is with BBC Persian TV, which broadcasts in Afghanistan. He says disdain for the disabled is reflected in the language. In Afghanistan, I mean in Persian, we have got few words. The first one is mayub, which means we literally, you know, the translation is a person with a defect. The news media use more respectful language, but Qadri says it's not always easy to come up with the right words. Sometimes it's to do with the translation. I know it, they make sense in English, but for us, I mean especially in Persian when you translate it, that doesn't make sense. Sometimes you need to use a local solution, not a translated one, as with this Persian expression for blind. Bright in the stomach. Bright or light in the stomach. The stomach in many cultures being almost like a second brain or second seer. For the world, I'm Patrick Cox. And you can hear many more foreign expressions describing disability in our latest language podcast. It's called The World in Words. Just go to theworld.org. You can also find there the video of the artist Sue Austin, who we spoke with yesterday, who performs an underwater ballet in her wheelchair. This is PRI. PRI's The World is supported by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece Mystery. Kenneth Branagh stars as brooding Swedish cop Inspector Kurt Wallander. A new season of Wallander, Sunday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Miners in South Africa are refusing to end a deadly strike that's now in its fourth week. The violence came to a head last month. Police opened fire at the Lawnmen Platinum Mine. They killed 34 strikers. Now the unrest is spreading to other mines in South Africa. And critics say that's partly because of the actions of the former youth leader of the ruling ANC, the African National Congress. His name is Julius Malema. He's been accused of inflaming tensions at the mines, including urging strikers to make the mines ungovernable. Here's Malema speaking to the BBC. What do you mean by ungovernable? I mean they must put down their tools. I'm not calling for violence. Not calling for killing of anybody. Workers must refuse to sell their labor. Enough is enough unless capital is prepared to pay enough living wage. Malema's presence at the mines has been controversial. Some say he's fueling the unrest to try to unseat his former boss, South African President Jacob Zuma. They say he's also trying to revive a political career that stalled when he was kicked out of the ANC last year. Malema dismisses his critics, and he says people mistake his brash manner for arrogance. I'm not arrogant. I just tell the truth. People don't like the truth, especially those who have benefited from a murderous apartheid regime. They don't like the truth, so I only tell the truth. I tell it the way it is. You either take it or you leave it. Julius Malema says he's never pretended to be a diplomatic leader. I'm a political activist. Let me leave the world of diplomacy to diplomacy. I enjoy being a radical, militant, political activist. The world's Carol Hills monitors political cartoons around the globe, and she has been observing just how Malema has been portrayed throughout his career. How is he being depicted right now, though, Carol? Well, he's being depicted as a complete opportunist. In fact, there's one cartoon that says, look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane. No, it's opportunist man. Meaning him. him. Yes, meaning Julius Molina flying. So it's very much a kind of comeback, an opportunistic comeback for him. He was really in the political wilderness since April when he was dumped as ANC youth leader. So he's He's being portrayed as somebody who's completely taking advantage of the miners' tragedy to get back in the political spotlight. And so, again, how are the uh, illustrators, the cartoonists, showing this? What kind of metaphors are they using? 
Well, there's one where he's kind of sitting in a mine and with all these miners who are angry, and the caption says, I've struck political gold with the discontent of the miners. There's another one where it says, when pigs fly, and there's two pigs up there, and there's a banner next to one saying, Malima, president of South Africa, and the other saying, nationalization of the South African mines, something he's pushing hard for without a real grasp of the facts, but he's throwing that out there. I saw one of them where he is walking, kind of strutting over the bodies of some of the dead miners, all in cartoons. Yes, and he's blowing a trumpet with the word opportunist on it. So so why is he such uh, a ready-made figure for cartoonists in South Africa? He's incredibly provocative. He's kind of the kind of populist let's enrage the masses kind of guy. He's just always saying provocative things, whether it's kind of supporting Robert Mugabe when the rest of the world thinks that he's doing a bad job and even president of Zimbabwe, president of Zimbabwe and, and advocating kind of drastic land reform measures in South Africa. He's just somebody who's constantly, constantly saying provocative things and appealing to kind of people's base feelings. Any kind of sensitivities, though, among the, the uh, cartoonists about him? Well, there is a sensitivity in the cartooning world in South Africa just because so many political cartoonists there are white. It's changing slowly. And, and Malema is black. And Malema is black. And that in itself makes political cartoonists easily criticized. That said, there's almost kind of universal disdain for Julius Malema among cartoonists. So I would say the imagery by non-white cartoonists is slightly slightly tamer, but not by much. He's just somebody who really, really provokes people. And you can see the cartoons about Julius Malema that Carol's been describing. They're at theworld.org, the world's Carol Hills. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. And finally today, back in 2008, Barack Obama's run for the White House generated a lot of enthusiasm in Kenya. Many there claim the candidate is one of their own because Barack Obama Sr. was Kenyan. Nairobi singer Makadem scored a hit with this song. It's entitled, Obama Be Thy Name. All the voters in America, Barack Obama be thy name. Thy change shall come, thy will be done, as it is in American dreams. Four years later, Makadem says Kenyans are still on Obama's side. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of influence on the African people, on the African youth, on the Kenyan youth, and people still support him largely. But Kenyans have their own upcoming elections to think about, and Makadem admits that's what he's concentrating on. Kenya was supposed to hold presidential elections this year, but they've been pushed back now to next March. And as politicians actively campaign, some Kenyans fear a repeat of the widespread ethnic violence that followed their last presidential vote. More than a 1,000 people were killed in clashes after the election's outcome was disputed. Well, this time around, Makadem hopes that Kenya will avoid that, despite heated rhetoric in the campaign. I'm always uh, a positive person, and I'm quite optimistic that it will end up well, but the way it looks, it looks bad. But at the end of the day, somehow, things always work out. So that's what gives me the optimism that we'll have a new president and we'll move on well and Kenya is going to come tops. Now, one issue close to Makadem's heart is getting young people out to vote. He says there's a lot of work to be done on that front. There's something in Kenya about the youth not wanting to vote, especially the young girls, the under 25s, they don't want to vote. And I always tell them, no, whether it is not directly coming to you, it does affect your life because those guys sit there in parliament and they decide your future. 
so you better be involved. To make his point, Makadam is planning to write a song directed at young potential voters. He says the lyrics will declare that one of them could be president of Kenya someday. In the meantime, Makadem already has a track that praises the young women of Nairobi. It's called Naya Nairobi. Check out a video of Makadem performing Naya Nairobi in Mexico earlier this year. That's at theworld.org. From the Nana Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins, and we're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.